I realized that for a long time, I'd turned my back on a huge part of myself, i.e. the gypsy part of myself, probably because being at school and secondary school, I felt these were in a way going to be a hindrance to my getting on in the world. And that had become second nature. Once I embraced my community's knowledge and my experience of my community, I was then able to kind of fly. Romatopia. Romat hai sintura čeren svatoka trlendju utopija. Sarbišaja e Evropa tharateavel. So, hello, welcome and latrodivis to the very first episode of the podcast Romatopia. Roma talk about their utopia for Europe. My name is Isabel Rabe and I'm hosting this podcast together with William Bila. And a big welcome to everyone also from my side. In this podcast, we are going to talk to Roma from all over Europe and beyond about their lives, about their experiences and about their utopia. We want to present counter images and counter narratives to oppose stereotypes and prejudices. In the coming months, we'll be talking to a number of noteworthy community members from a varied cross-section of the Romani peoples. I'm really interested in hearing about what being Romani is to other people, because we don't often get a chance to discuss such things. For those who do not know, the Romani peoples are Europe's largest minority, and that includes Sinti, Roma, Gitanos, Romanis, and other groups who loosely share a common ancestry and have been present in Europe for well over 600 years. Through linguistic theories, we know that they originated in India, traveled through Persia, and were present in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time before dispersing throughout Europe. Their economic and cultural contributions have historically been overlooked. Their history is an integrally interwoven part of European history, which also is often mistaken as one of eternal exclusion and hardship. Though periods of extreme persecution did make their mark well before the 20th century and the genocide which we suffered during the Second World War. After the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, the Romani peoples have gradually been making themselves more visible on the European scene. Thank you, Bill, for this brief journey through Romani history. So we introduced the Romani peoples to our listeners. That's very good. But now let's welcome our very first guest, the artist, curator and theorist Daniel Baker. Daniel, welcome. Hello, Isabel. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Bill. Daniel, we prepared a little game to start with. We asked a friend of yours to describe you in one sentence. I'm going to read this sentence to you and um, then you have to guess who said this. Okay. <laughs> Ready? When I'm traveling throughout Wales, I think of Daniel. He's a kind-hearted, soul full of spirit and inspiration. Any idea? Um, Wales is a big clue. I think that might be Isaac Blake, director of Romani Cultural Arts Company. Exactly. So it was too simple. <laughs> yeah, good job. <laughs> Indeed, it's Isaac Blake. He's dancer and choreographer from Wales, director of the Romani Cultural and Arts Company. Maybe you tell us a bit about those travels through Wales. Well, yes, I've known Isaac for um, since about 2013, so maybe seven years. Um, he invited me to produce an exhibition for uh, Gypsy Roma and Traveller History Month in the UK for 2014. So he had some funding from the Arts Council of Wales and basically commissioned an exhibition from me, which I was very pleased to accept. Since then, I've worked with Isaac on a number of occasions around workshops and things like this for traveller, Gypsy Roma and Traveller people in Wales and also non-Gypsy Roma and Traveller people in schools and in galleries and that kind of thing. And also, I've been working on his Gypsy Maker project for 
the last few years acting as a sort of mentor and advisor to the artists that are selected to take part in the program. Again, they offered an amount of money to produce an exhibition, which um, Isaac then tours throughout Wales. So he's also a friend. So we have a good professional relationship, but we have a good friendship as well. GRT, Gypsy, Roma and Traveller, is an umbrella term used in the UK to describe a number of different minority groups. Gypsies, Romanese, who have been indigenous to the UK since approximately the 16th century, Roma, who have migrated to the UK in recent decades, and Irish travelers, who have been present for more than a thousand years. Gypsies, Romanese, as well as travelers, have been mostly leading itinerant lives until recently, whereas Roma have traditionally been settled. Gypsy is a commonly used term by the people themselves to describe themselves and is not necessarily the translation equivalent of Tsigoyna or Tsigan, which is necessarily pejorative. Sometimes the words gypsy and traveler are used interchangeably, which may be inaccurate, but reflects common usage by the people who use these terms to describe themselves. Let's stick with your biography a bit. Uh, yeah, Daniel, can we ask you to describe yourself in one sentence? Well, yes. I mean, apart from the obvious things like... Um, gender and ethnicity, I will go on to say that I'm good at coming up with ideas and I'm focused in carrying out those ideas. So I think that's how I see myself really as a kind of a, an ideas person which can make those ideas a reality. Sounds good. Let me just give a little bit of an introduction to our listeners. Basically, Daniel Baker is an artist, a curator and researcher, a Romani gypsy born in Kent. He holds a PhD on the subject of gypsy aesthetics from the Royal College of Art in London. Daniel Baker curated the exhibition Future Roma at the 58th International Art Exhibition at the Venice Biennale in 2019. He acted as exhibitor and advisor to the first and the second Roma pavilions, Paradise Lost, and Call the Witness at the 52nd and 54th Venice Biennales, respectively. His work can be found in collections worldwide. Baker worked as visual advisor for Rome Archive, digital archive of the Roma, and contributed to its dance section. He's former chair of the Gypsy Council, and Daniel Baker currently lives and works in London. Is that correct? Is there anything else you want to add to that? Um, no, that sounds about right. <laughs> okay, great. So we did our homework, Bill. That's good. <laughs> so let's talk about your childhood, Daniel. I'm starting with a question. What is your most vivid memory of your childhood? Um, well, that's a good question. I suppose in terms of my current um, occupation, I'm very much aware and I'm influenced by memories of the interior of my parents' home. Uh, by the time I was born, my parents weren't traveling anymore. They weren't living in caravans. I was the last of um, six children. And so by that time, they'd moved into um, housing provided by the local authority. There was a large site um, that they lived on for a number of years, which changed hands and then got kind of developed. So the council put them into social housing. And I remember the decor of my parents' home being full of glass cabinets with ornamented crockery, ceramic figurines, mirrored backgrounds to these cabinets, which reflected these kind of precious objects from all sides. So my earliest memories are really of these fascinating kind of visual, visually stimulating um, 
displays within my parents' home. Ah, that's interesting. Were you allowed to play with those objects or were they really safe and holy in these glass cabinets? Well, yes, they were really out of reach. <laughs> um, so no, we weren't allowed to play with them. But my father and my sisters actually used to make quite a lot of things. So my father would make flowers from wood. So he'd carve, I'm trying to remember what which wood it was. Anyway, he'd carve a, carve a particular type of wood to make flowers and then he'd dye them. And also he'd make paper flowers as well from crepe paper and wire. So my sisters, I was a bit too young at the time, but my sisters would help him make these things, but not, not the wooden ones, actually. He was the only one that made the wooden ones because it involved a sharp knife. So these are things that we could, could kind of play with and have in our hands that were kind of drawing on the things that were in the cabinets. Like often these things in the cabinets had lots of ornamentation with flowers and birds and that kind of thing. So we weren't allowed to play with the crockery, but we could play with the things that my dad made. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You said that your parents moved into a house from a site short time before you were born. Um, did they want to move in, into a house or were they forced to? That's a good question. Um, Uh, you're full of good questions, actually. I keep saying it. <laughs> I'm not sure, actually, what the answer to that is. I think by the time I had come along, they had six children and they were relatively settled on this particular site. It was called Cork's Meadow, otherwise known as the Pit, because it was a chalk pit in, in Kent, in St. Mary Cray. And this was a huge traveller site. And they lived there for quite a long period of time. So I think they were very settled in the area. I imagine that when they were offered housing by the council, because there was no possibility of moving their caravans to another site in the same area, I imagine that they kind of accepted willingly. I think it probably took a while for them to adjust to living in a house rather than living in a, in a caravan or a trailer. But um, There were lots of families that did the same thing. So the, the street that they were moved into eventually, initially they were moved into prefabricated housing, which is, was very common after the war in, in, the, in the UK. And then they were moved into a kind of a more permanently built house, which is where I was born. And I think having, you know, bedrooms and a bathroom and stuff was all quite new to them. But I think it was probably welcomed, I would imagine, after having six kids kind of tugging at your apron strings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And and how was it going to school in this area? I guess so. You you weren't the only Romani kid in school, and and uh, I don't know. I imagine perhaps even your brothers and sisters went to the same school. How did you feel? Well, my next sibling to me is about nine years older than me, so oh. we weren't actually in school at the same time. But there were other gypsy families, obviously in the area, which went to the same school. But interestingly, we didn't really communicate with each other. And I I've thought about this actually on a number of occasions. And I think certainly in school, I mean, I did quite well at school. And I think I had definitely had the feeling that in order to participate in school and to make a go of it, my gypsiness would not be welcome there. So I definitely felt there was a, in, in hindsight, I felt that as a young child, I think even as a young child, you have a very kind of canny sense of, of how the world works. I mean, maybe that's Not the case, I don't know, but I, I certainly felt that way, that there were certain things that I couldn't couldn't do in order to kind of fit in, if you like, and by fitting in, become maybe what I wanted to be or, or, or be less conspicuous. So you didn't necessarily yourself experience any discrimination at school, but oh, yes, maybe yeah. you you seen yeah. other kids who did? Was that part of the reason why you did this? Or or I don't know, uh, did, you, did you see discrimination or, or feel it at all in any way? 
Yeah, I, I, I received discrimination as well. I was called a gypo. But th- that didn't mean that I kind of um, made links with the other gypsies in the school. I think I felt, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I, I think maybe there would have been some kind of solidarity there, but maybe I felt that would kind of compound the, you know what other people thought i'm not sure but yeah i definitely experienced discrimination and that in a way made me more kind of um resilient and made me think well you know i really have to try twice as hard to get anywhere here i mean the teachers weren't uh discriminatory i don't think but certainly some of the others the other people's were i mean children you know children like children yes. anything that's different and they'll they'll go for the jugular but um yeah, so although there were there were there were many other gypsy children there, they didn't feel like there was a gypsy community in the in this school. I think that's partly because there was no facility within the school to accommodate this identity. So there was no teaching about gypsy history, Roma history. I mean, it was before the Rome, term Roma was coined officially, actually, because that was coined in 1971, actually very near to where I was born in St Mary Cray. I was born in 61, so I was kind of going to early school in the late 60s and early 70s. So it was a difficult time. And um, I think that we cope with these things in the best way that we can. Rom is the word for a Romani man. Romni is the word for a Romani woman. Roma is the plural form. And in English, sometimes it's used as an adjective. Romnia is the plural of Romni, Romani women. Romani is the adjective. This refers to Roma. It is the correct adjective to use in English as well. Romani Chib is the Romani language or the Romani tongue. And Romanes is often used to refer to the Romani language, but literally it means in the Romani way. Later in the 70s, as a teenager in school, was there, what was it like? Uh, I guess, you know, it was a different time. Uh, maybe this was also something that just uh, didn't come up. But I want to throw out the question anyway, as a teenager, because uh, kids notice other things and they, they get their ideas and they go for the jugular. Was there an issue with you being gay at school, in high school? Um, yes, definitely. And I think that compounded with the gypsy business you know that my my kind of gypsy identity certainly when i went to secondary school i mean i i i I passed an exam which meant i could go to a a grammar school so it was a school that was populated in terms of the staff by ex-military so it was it was all quite strict it was an all-boys school um single-sex school and i was feeling very much kind of um there were certain things about me which i knew were going to be problematic in a secondary school situation for one thing being a gypsy for one thing being gay so that really um yeah it was tough because i was getting more hassle about the gay thing i mean i never came out as gay to anyone but people assumed i was gay and they were quite right i didn't um, disabuse them of that um, notion but i never played into um, a dialogue about it i kind of just ignored these people i mean there were you know many people they they, they picked on in terms of that kind of um, issue but i was never physically um attacked or anything like that but the the name calling was kind of petty and you know a bit relentless but uh, you know you learn to cope with these things and not that you should learn to cope with them but you find a way through and i think that experience has informed a lot of my future work actually the, the things that i'm dealing with now in terms of my studio work and my 
to some degree my writing are kind of rooted in that experience of of double prejudice what we would call now intersectionality i suppose kind of a coming together of various aspects of your identity which other people might find uh, issues with and um the navigation of that is something which i experienced on a number of levels i mean wh- when i was growing up i didn't tell my family i was gay so there was a whole idea of having to keep this piece of information about myself away from all aspects of my kind of uh, social interactivity whereas the gypsy thing you know obviously my family were gypsies so that was something i felt comfortable about with them so do you find strategies for dealing with these things and that really informed a lot of the research that i went on to do around for instance my master's degree after my first degree in fine art i went on a number of years later actually and kind of by accident i went on to uh take part in a, a master's degree in sociology under professor thomas acton who who's who's a great man and he he was very kind of nurturing it, 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 during that period but my work my research for that master's degree focused on gay gypsy identities because that was something that i felt really hadn't been um covered by any writings about romani history even any gay writings you know there's a, the history of kind of the queer history had nothing about gypsies in it the roman history had nothing about gay people in it so when it came to kind of carry out my final dissertation for the master's degree i said to thomas acton i'd like to do something on gay gypsies he said well there's nothing written about that so it'd have to be from scratch i said yes i have the contacts i can i can do this i have i now have my research training from you i think i can do this and i did it and actually it's that was a very useful piece of research that i've done and actually i'm just publishing something based on that now for um a polish journal so that piece of research that was done in 2000 has kind of resonated not only through kind of my whole career tra- trajectory in terms of ideas of visual representations and visuality and invisibility um but also in terms of the kind of emerging lgbtq plus roma identities Oh, a really pioneering piece of work there. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that it was much harder for you in those times than it is now because there is now this LGBTIQ uh Roma community doing a lot of work and we have now researchers uh working on that topic and it's very interesting um that you you turned your personal struggle and the and the discrimination you're facing into a professional work doing sociology and romani studies later and and combining all these aspects my next question would originally be um when did you decide to become an artist but i want to formulate it the other way around was this struggle of being kind of marginalized or seen as i don't know someone else not really um part of the majority society did this encourage you to become an artist because the position of an artist in society is as well always kind of bohemian position well i think i was very good at drawing and and making things when i was very young so from a young age i was always doing art based things really um and i knew from a very young age that i wanted to to pursue this as a as a kind of career i suppose when you have a rough idea of what you want to be when you're very young and um as soon as i could i went to art school um which meant leaving uh secondary school a bit early so i, I went and i did my degree and um i found that very uh fulfilling in a number of ways but i did have kind of i remember having an issue about finding a voice and that 
is something that continued for, for a long time. And doing my, so, so I did my, I finished my fine art degree in, I think, 83. Yep. So, and during that period from 83 until I started my master's degree, which was in maybe 1999, 1998, probably, I had been making work and really during that time trying to find a voice through which to kind of um, communicate in terms of my artwork. At the time of my master's degree, I was making what could be termed as process painting, as that means kind of abstract paintings using things like poured paint, basically letting the paint do its job and basically marshalling that to create the kind of works you want to make. It's quite a technical kind of conceptual type of painting, Mm -hmm. which I enjoyed. And it had resonance within my uh, sociology studies because that was about the behavior of peoples. So my my painting was about the behavior of a physical substance, i.e. paint. So I could see parallels there. And I did did kind of make a, a conceptual argument for those paintings. But once I started my PhD, with the encouragement of Thomas Acton again, I then started to look at the history, my personal history of my involvement with gypsy visual culture, which, as I said at the beginning, were these kind of amazing ornaments and cabinets that I was surrounded with as a child. Yeah. And I realised at that point, once I entered into my PhD studies, which was just a year after or so, no, actually it was about five years after I finished my my MA, I realised that for a long time I'd turned my back on a huge part of myself, i.e. the gypsy part of myself, probably because being at school and secondary school, I felt these were in a way going to be a hindrance to my getting on in the world. So, and that had become second nature. So it was something, it was, I was aware of this part of me, but it was almost as though there was a door closed on it. So when I opened that door, really the creative flow started to be unstoppable. So, and that was a very good lesson for me because I realized that when we can embrace all parts of ourselves, then things come together and things really start to flow. If, if we're struggling with a part of ourselves and we're keeping that part of us closed off, it means there's not a free flow of kind of um, energy and communication between the kind of the whole parts of yourself. So it wasn't until I started my PhD really that I realized the power and the possibilities that the visual culture of my community had and that's when things really started to take off in my work I think it it changed completely before that I was making these very very kind of dry interesting actually I still have a few in my home on display because I think they're really interesting and they go with the the kind of decor that I have but um, the contrast between those very hard edge kind of sober minimalist works and the work that I make now couldn't be more different so it was almost as though a switch was thrown. And suddenly, once I embraced my community's knowledge and my experience of my community, I was then able to kind of fly. Mm-hmm. That's interesting and, and very nicely formulated. So you really had to look back to how you grew up, to the tradition, and in order to be able to to make a step into the future, right? Exactly, yes. That's where we, we already now, in the beginning of our of our talk, we, we have the topic of utopia here, actually. Yes. Completely other question. We will come back to your art, I promise. <laughs> um, Daniel, are you an urban or a countryside person? Um, I think I'm an urban person at heart, really. Uh, the place I was born is... Um, it's part of Greater London. When I was born there, I think it wasn't London, it was Kent. It's still Kent, it's a bit confusing. It's basically a victim, or not a victim, it's um, it, it, it's now 
a consequence of London expanding and expanding. So what was Kent County Council is now the London Borough of Bromley. So it's a kind of, which is very, very kind of um, appropriate. It's a kind of liminal area, which is, it's on the green belt. So it's it's the countryside, but it's also the city. So it's this kind of mixture of the two. And it feels very much the case because from the, the bedroom of my home where I was born, you could see the farms um, in one direction. And on the other direction, you could see the sprawl of the city. So it's very much kind of... Um, I was born between the two and enjoyed kind of both. But now I think I'm more of a country, I know, a a city person. But I do have an allotment in the city, which is where I grow um, vegetables and things. So that's, that's a kind of a nod to the to the rural side of myself. Mm-hmm. I see. You're traveling a lot, aren't you? Where do you feel at home? I know, uh, Daniel, you did a great job of introducing how, how and where you live, but... Uh, traveling uh we want to maybe just make sure that our listeners understand what that means traveling you're not you're not living in a caravan right now you're good point bill <laughs> that's right no i, I live in, i live in a, a, an apartment in in london no in fact i've never lived in a, in a caravan my family moved into a house before i was born all my brothers and sisters were born in caravans so i'm kind of the um the exception to to that um, rule within our family but um No, as Isabel says, I, I I travel a lot with my work, not so much recently because of the COVID uh, restrictions. But yes, I, I, I certainly enjoy enjoy seeing parts of the world that I haven't seen before. My most recent trip was to Florence uh, to restage the Futuroma exhibition there in um, September. And I'll be going back there in a couple of weeks to uh, to take the show down. And well, considering that you do have to travel to places that are quite far away, you you fly, you go to to different parts of Europe. Um, how has the pandemic affected you and your ability to work? And and what about your family? Well, I haven't seen much of my family throughout the whole pandemic because um, issues around you know, self isolating and stuff for some of those people. So I yep. didn't want to take any chances. So I haven't um, haven't visited them. I think I visited them once um, when things were eased up a bit. But in terms of my work and stuff, because I work at home, the lockdown restrictions didn't affect me that much because I wasn't having to commute to to a studio or anything like that. So I've been really um, just getting on with some things that things I've been working on uh, previously, but um, finishing off things and starting some new ideas. It's been a bit of an opportunity to kind of experiment a bit more, play around with some ideas that I'd had that I hadn't had the time to to uh, kind of fully commit to. So I think um, I'm very lucky in that um, it hasn't meant that I've had to stop doing anything. The only thing that stopped are exhibitions, which of course is is difficult um, because those will either have to be completely cancelled or restaged. Certainly the Gypsy Maker project I've been working on with Isaac Blake, we had three exhibitions scheduled for the spring. Only one of them could happen. The others, we managed to find other ways of presenting the work, i.e. virtual galleries or other kinds of options. And we had a seminar kind of scheduled, which again, we had to carry out via Zoom. I think exhibiting has been tricky and it will continue to be tricky for a while because galleries will be Uh, operating under certain restrictions. As I said, some of the projects that I was due to show in are now postponed to next year. But hopefully that um, we'll find ways of adapting and, and be able to move forward with those kind of issues. Let's talk about your art. Let's delve a bit deeper here. So you do installations, sculptures, 
paintings. Um, and as you already said, the Romani visual culture is your main source of inspiration, one could say. You're fascinating by what you call gypsy aesthetics. Um, and in your art, you are mixing kind of the visual culture of Roma with modernism and, and contemporary or conceptual art and always highlighting the role of the traditional within the contemporary. Being asked to describe your work, you once said, I make shiny things. I love that answer. And actually, it's a viable answer to the question, uh, what one does. <laughs> so tell us a bit about these shiny things. The main source of my inspiration, as we've discussed, is gypsy material and uh, visual culture. And during my uh, research uh, at the Royal College of Art, I examined a number of objects, basically kind of to distill and determine what the key qualities were within these objects that made them kind of fascinating to me and also which which kind of located them very much within the gypsy uh, visual world. And can I just ask uh, briefly, the, the gypsy visual world or the gypsy aesthetic, is this something that you defined? Uh, because, I mean, I know a little bit about your work, but I don't know what a gypsy aesthetic is. Uh, how can that be described? Because it's not uh, something that's universal across basically all different Romani peoples. So if you could just say a little bit about that too, because because some people might find that, uh, might make a lot of assumptions there. Yeah, well, the gypsy aesthetic is being defined by me. I kind of came up with it, with the idea, um, basically because during my studies, I I couldn't find anything at all written about gypsy visual culture. Lots of stuff about uh, dance, about storytelling, about um, all other kinds of aspects of gypsy culture. Nothing about the visual, which, which to me seemed very strange because gypsies are a very visual people. So um, I decided that I was well positioned being equipped with research skills and also being able to being an artist. I thought I could, um, you know, make an, make an examination of this phenomena. So I set about writing a, uh, about gypsy visuality, researching gypsy visuality, which is in effect uh, gypsy aesthetics. So during that research, I kind of determined a number of, of kind of key qualities. And these could be summed up quite easily. I mean, this is my opinion. So this is my kind of uh, take on things. I think they other, other people may find, you know, resonance within this. But so here we go. The the kind of defining defining factors are, I would say, the a kind of concurrency of display and concealment. This idea of of showiness, which is in effect employed in order to to maintain privacy, and things that are like shininess, flashiness, they're very much part of the Roma aesthetic. And this can be can be seen in things like you know jewelry that gypsy people might wear, lots of gold stuff, the the ways that. Um, I described earlier my the decor of my family home, which had lots of shiny things in glass cabinets with mirrors, so lots of reflective surfaces, lots of high ornamentation, a kind of Baroque sensibility. Um, they are the kind of things that I've been describing as a kind of gypsy aesthetic. And although the visual manifestations of this would be in things like high pattern, juxtapositions of kind of clashing colours, uh, very shiny surfaces, mirrored surfaces, you know, gold and silver, that kind of thing. They're the physical manifestations, but I would suggest that the mechanisms that are occurring there are based around this process of displaying in order to conceal. And that, I would say, is a protection mechanism that the Roma have developed over 
many, many uh, hundreds of years in order to kind of maintain a, a kind of a distance from prying eyes which, you know, are, are trying to kind of uncover um, what's going on within the kind of private gypsy world. So this idea of the aesthetics, it, it's manifesting qualities which are shining this as a good example, um, but it's about other things. It's about mechanisms that have been um, learned or developed through a positioning of marginalization within society. Do you define this, this gypsy aesthetics for all Romani groups all over Europe, or is your research uh, focusing on, on the UK? Well, my research has focused on the UK, yes. But I would say that um, partly because gypsy, gypsies, Roma and Traveller in the UK have been more recently nomadic. And um, I think that is quite a significant factor. I mean, in, in other parts of sort of Central Europe and Eastern Europe, I because the actuality of nomadism has been left behind a long time ago, there are certain other aspects of the visual culture of those communities which I have looked at in terms of narrative painting and that kind of thing. But I can still find similarities between between those kinds of um, narrative works and the, the works that I'm describing in terms of decor and tools and implements and dress and that kind of thing that, that are happening in the UK. I, what I'm trying to say is I think the idea of art is very much more established within Central and Eastern European Roma culture. Mm -hmm. In, in Northern European culture, I would even say in Spain and in France, in England, in, in the whole of the UK and in Sweden, let's say, I think that the idea of art is very much removed from our, from our sense of the world. So our art basically takes place within the home. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't have paintings and things that we, we don't offer the same kind of value for those things. I think we, we instill more value in things like you know, the cups that you drink out. So this idea of functionality and ornament is also a very important factor of the Roma aesthetic. And I just think that the, the, the Roma aesthetic does span all Roma communities, but in a way, the, 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 the qualities and the mechanisms I'm talking about are maybe from a bit later in the history of most Roma communities in Europe, whereas in Western Europe, those qualities are still very much alive, I think. So I think it's a trajectory. I think you can think about it in terms of maybe evolution, the evolution of the Roma people, the gypsy people in Western Europe, I think is is kind of a few steps behind. And that's not a negative thing. I think it's a very interesting thing because we're still very much in touch with certain aspects of the the urgencies of nomadism. Mm -hmm. Whereas a, a, lot, a lot of um, more established Roma communities aren't maybe so so much in touch with that i think it's still there i think there's an essence of that and i think this idea of a nomadic sensibility is interesting because which i've also written quite a lot about because it's not about people moving around it's about a kind of a culturization that's been passed down which is about these urgencies of you know a a community marginalized and in crisis so that i think that stays with roma people even though they're not still moving around 
I think that I mean there may that may be contentious. I may get a lot of flack about that, but um, oh, but those are interesting conclusions, and it's it's nice to hear. We're we're here to talk to you about your opinion too. So you you've explained yourself quite well about uh, what you've studied, what you've come to, and and the conclusions you've come, and how you work with them. So, so that's what we want to hear too. Yeah, but it's very interesting. I, I think also this idea of high art on the one the one side and domestic art on the other side is really a Western European idea, isn't it? And as far as I understood in the Romani visual culture, this is very much interwoven with each other. There's no such a big distinction between the two, right? Yes, I would say that. And I think that, um, I mean, I've written about this a bit, I think that, um, that that kind of holding on to the idea of the domestic within the contemporary is something which defines the emerging contemporary Roma art scene, really. That aspect of, of drawing together from those different registers and hierarchies of practice is very important. And I think it, it, it maintains a connection with the community, but also it says some new things about the contemporary moment. So I think that that is something which can be said that that is a defining factor of of the um, the emerging contemporary art. And maybe also another aspect uh, regarding Roma visuality is that, um, I mean, there was, for a long time, there was the lack of the written written tradition, right? It was more an, an, an oral tradition, the Romani tradition, um, even though now we, of course, have many, many fascinating, very great Romani authors and writers, um, is, this all, is this also a reason that Roma are focusing on these visual aspects? Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, my, my parents um, didn't read or write, and we didn't really have books in the home. So this phenomenon of illiteracy is continues to be an important issue, I think. And certainly that has determined the exuberance of gypsy visuality of roma visuality you know uh, not just in terms of um in terms of display but also in terms of dance and you know song oral traditions uh they're very heightened and i think because of this absence of a written tradition and certainly the absence of a written tradition reflects the absence of gypsy from from western histories from eastern histories you know we're, we're we're not included in those histories in any meaningful way so why should we you know why should we partake in in the written word of course there are all reasons all kinds of reasons why we should but being um in a way not included is not an incentive to actually take part so i think that obviously now that's changing and that's good but One consequence of that absence of literacy has been a very vibrant and energetic and powerful visual language, which the Roma communities continue to um, use. So are, are you saying then that, uh, oh, I think I have two questions here. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it's a kind of a political choice or, or a kind of uh, resistance to, well, we're going to do it our way and that's why you're doing this or... Or is it perhaps uh, that uh, you're taking into consideration Romani Gypsies as your audience for your art? You want them to see this. You want them. Uh, are you who are you producing for? Is is I guess the question. Well, that's interesting. I think that um, you know illiteracy for a long time was a political act by Gypsies because I remember, I remember when I was a child, lots of my parents' friends saying. They didn't want to learn to read because they didn't trust the written word. They didn't trust people that were writing things about them. And that's a political decision to decide not to partake in that. That's interesting. I never heard that before. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that's, that's a very important thing to remember. But certainly in terms of my work, I'm making it for 
as many people as possible, really. I mean, there, I'm always thinking about how this is going to be seen within the drama community, and but also how it's going to be seen within all communities. I think as an artist, that's something that's very important because the way that you put things together and the way that you formulate and present your ideas has to be done in a way that can convey your ideas as clearly and concisely as possible. If that doesn't happen, you're not doing your job properly. If you think, I want someone to think about a certain topic when they look at this, and that doesn't happen, then you need to find a way of making that happen. And you do that by trying things out, getting feedback, seeing how this makes people feel, seeing how it makes you feel when you look at what you're doing. So that takes time and skill to be able to define a language for yourself. So I... I hope that my work has multiple currency in terms of who can relate to it and on what, what kind of level. Do you have the feedback from, from various Roma communities from, from Europe yeah. or from the UK uh, in terms of how they've reacted to the, yeah, your aesthetic framework and, and how you present things? Yes, I have had um, feedback from um, members of the Roma community. The um, An early example I can think of is in um uh, maybe 20 years ago i was asked to show in an exhibition down in kent and one of the pieces that i showed was uh my first no traveler's sign which is a it's a kind of um a highly ornamented mirrored sign reflective kind of sign written in in a kind of a, a lovely text uh and it says no traveler so This is an example of the Roman aesthetic. It's very inviting to look at, but it, as soon as you kind of read what it says, it pushes you away. So it's a kind of an offensive piece of text, but it's written in a very alluring manner. And I showed this at an exhibition down in Kent of which a number of gypsies came to. And a couple of people said to me, why have you put that there? It's um, I find that offensive. This is, a, this is a gypsy talking. I find that offensive. It, means, it makes me feel like I don't want to be here. I said, well, that's interesting. What I'm trying to do with that piece of work is to basically display the, in a way, covert racism that still exists within society. Although the places where these no traveler signs used to occur in pubs and things like that, they'd have them in the window, basically saying they didn't want any gypsies to come in. That's against the law now, although it does still happen. I was So I explained to this, um, this person I was speaking to, what I'm trying to do here is dress this awful phrase up in a lovely kind of image to show that that's still happening, but it's not admitted to. So this idea that this kind of racist sentiment is built into the architecture of the community, of, of society, is very problematic. And when I look at that, when, I, when, I, when people look at that piece of art, I want them to be kind of disturbed by it and think that's, that's not a good thing to be kind of seeing. But hopefully the way that it's put together can bring some other aspects into the argument and show that what I'm trying to do is make something a kind of more complex, something that's hard-hitting and striking, but also has another kind of narrative occurring within it. Also, a number of the other pieces that I showed in the exhibition, which are, again, pieces that are, are kind of still part of the things that I make, along with the signs. I showed these, um, again, they were mirrored objects with... Uh, aspects of wildlife painted on them, things like flowers or birds. But these were then graffitied with kind of um, crossings out and spray paint over the actual uh, ornamented image. And um, someone else asked me why I'd done that, because they said they'd really like to have that piece of work in their home if it wasn't graffitied and messed up. And I, I explained that what I was trying to do is um, 
is kind of look at the way that the gypsy is seen in society, i.e. the demonized and the romanticized, and try and bring these two ideas together in a kind of visual form and try and find a dialogue between the two and a kind of beauty in between the two. And to me, these works do offer a kind of problematic account, an, an account of a problematic situation, this kind of very polarised ideas of the gypsies, but hopefully they kind of find a way of of trying to untangle that, literally kind of untangle that, because the the, the, the flowers and the birds often look like they're tied up with these kind of graffitied marks. And they, they kind of understood that. So although they maybe didn't still didn't want to have it on in their home, they could see what I was trying to do. Um, so I think that what, what what I would say about that is people were able to see some aspects of their home life represented within the gallery. So if they're saying to me that the things that I make, if they were changed a bit, they'd like to have them at home, that means they would fit into their idea of their home life. Yeah. And I that kind of affirmation experience of going to a gallery and seeing something that is a a little bit of it maybe is part of, you know, has some kind of resonance in your own life. I think that's an interesting starting point. And I think if I was making stuff that people wanted in their home, I think I wouldn't get very far as an artist because that's not what my job is. But um, I think to get people to think about things in relation to them and the complexities of their situation, rather than just being fed something which is a kind of um, a comfortable representation of what people think their lives are, I think that's. A good starting point. Yeah. In the future Roma catalog, you you put it that way, the artwork acts as an extension of the artist, a proxy, if you will, which in turn acts as an extension of their community. I think this makes it very clear, this idea. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, there's another artwork, um, one of those mirrored signs I really uh, really like very much. It's the one uh, where you put on this red location mark like the ones at google maps saying you are here i find this very very strong because it's really about reclaiming the space occupation um i like that one very much too oh thank you thank you yes that was an interesting um series to make um that was commissioned by the Romani cultural arts company in thick in 2018 we had a retrospective of the gypsy maker artist's work and we were each kind of um commissioned to make a new piece of work for this um group show and that work is very interesting to me because it's kind of has a bit more resonance now as well with the whole covid thing because it was it was to try to question um or to to open up ideas about encounters it's called the encounter series and there were three in three in the series and it's about the encounter the physical encounter so What I was hoping to do with these works was, in a gallery situation, ask people to think about location in terms of relating to an object rather than relating digitally. So it's kind of a comment on digital communication, which of course is very important, particularly now, because we can't meet together. But it was trying to define a difference. Obviously, there's a difference, but it was trying to kind of enlarge upon that difference between the physical encounter and the digital encounter. So by using motifs from a digital app like as you say these google google maps pointers i was making that real in a kind of messy way i mean using paint and using gilding and using physical materials to represent this digital thing which doesn't really exist and also ask because you're actually reflected in the the uh, surface of the artwork the three artworks 
it's about saying, you know, you're here and now, and you're here with this object. You're not anywhere else that Google Maps might tell you, you, you know, you could possibly be. So it was about that encounter. But I think you're right. It has other resonances about uh, location and territories for gypsies, which, of course, we've been denied for so long. And certainly now in terms of COVID, it, it kind of has, as I said, this extra resonance about um, the encounter being in a way taken away from us and having to be reinvented. We also have to talk about one other artwork, the Altered States series, because uh, one of those motives is the cover of our Romatopia podcast. And I have to thank again that we can use this beautiful motive. You're always combining the Roma flag with other flags. And in, in this case, we choose the European flag, which is combined with the Roma flag. So you have the blue background, the yellow stars, and in the middle, the red wheel. The Romani flag. At the first World Roma Congress, which took place in London in 1971, the Roma flag, as well as the Roma anthem Jalem Jalem, was introduced as a symbol for the international Roma community. The upper half is blue, like the sky, the lower green, like the earth, and in the center is a red spoked wheel, a so-called chakra, which refers to the Indian origin of the Roma. However, the flag is not used by all groups. Most Sinti, mainly living in Germany, reject the flag because the wheel suggests that Roma and Sinti are still a nomadic people. The Altered States series. What it is about? What was your idea? Well, this was um, made as part of an exhibition called Makeshifting. Um, the subtitle of the exhibition was Structures of Mobility. And that exhibition was about the structures that enhance and in some cases inhibit mobility. So I was using things like ropes and wheels and ladders, um, very much kind of like a snakes and ladders game, really. So as snakes and ladders it is about, you know, moving forward with the throw of the dice, then moving back down a, you know, down a snake. Um, this idea of um, a rope, for example, being something that you could tow you know, a vehicle with to help mobility, but also you could put across a doorway to stop people coming in. So quite simple ideas around the objects that enhance mobility and also it inhibit it. And obviously that has issues around social mobility as well as kind of physical mobility. So it's, it's, it, obviously it ties into the Roma theme because that's something that I'm very interested in, this idea of, of uh Of mobility. Yeah, I think that's really important. I just uh, I want to throw in, I really like that piece. And and for me, uh, I don't know if I'm interpreting too much personally, but for me, it throws in the whole Schengen thing, basically, the ability to move across all of Europe, uh, to live and work wherever you want. However, it's often Roma who get singled out and deported back to their home country for some reason uh, against the law, basically. It's against the law for states to be doing that, yet we have these issues now. That's right. That's right, indeed. So the the um, the Alter State series was part of the makeshifting exhibition, and these were intended as again with the idea of mobility in mind, structures of mobility, the idea of a kind of a motif, a kind of symbol which would somehow encapsulate the idea of inclusion, but also operate as a kind of marker of um, presence. So what I mean by that is. These flags resituated the wheel from the Roma flag into a flag of, of a nation state, were basically acting as an icon of resistance, basically saying these communities have existed within these territories for hundreds of years, but also as a kind of a symbol of harmony. So they have a very double-edged kind of message. But I think 
the visual experience of them is very kind of tight and it's very kind of obvious and very clear. So I'm very pleased with those um, designs, really, because what I tried to do with each one, um, I made for that exhibition, I made one for um, the Welsh flag and also with the UK flag. And each design was different. I didn't just stick the same size wheel into each flag i thought about how the wheel would best harmonize with the with the existing design of the flag and that was a very interesting experience for me because it made me appreciate the existing flags more i.e the welsh flag and the uk flag and the eu flag but it also made me think about how those flags can kind of be adapted and in that maybe think about how those nations can be kind of you know changed so that was very interesting and i've recently made one for well actually a couple of years after that, I was invited to do a show at um, the Centre for Contemporary Art in Glasgow, and it was th- that exhibition was part of a Queer People of Colour film festival called Glitch, and the organisers wanted a queer person of colour artist to exhibit, and they'd seen my work in Venice before, and they uh, invited me to do this. So I decided to make a a new altered states flag using the uh, rainbow flag and the the Roma wheel again, and um, that's been interesting for me because I've had lots of requests to use the flag for for marches and in terms of uh, publications. And so this is a good example for me of an artwork that becomes a very kind of viable and social tool. I have a postcard of that on top of my bookshelf. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, do you have a favorite artwork to which you have a, a special or a very close relation? I would say my first No Traveller sign was a real turning point. I made the piece for an exhibition that I was invited to put on um, by a friend of mine called Paul Ryan, uh, another artist. And he was managing a space uh, in in a rural countryside and he invited me to to make an exhibition for that space. And um, the show was called No Travellers, based on this piece of work. And that's when I started making my mirrored pieces. So it was kind of a seminal uh, period for me, really. and. The exhibition opening, no one came. So um, (laughs) that was quite galling in some ways, but it was interesting for me to see how this artwork and the title of the exhibition was a real uh, deterrent for people to come to the show. And that, in a way, made me realise that I was onto something. If if these artworks or the potential idea of these artworks was going to have such a strong effect, then... I was moving in the right direction. I would like to to come back to a lecture performance you did in 2013 together with Ethel Brooks, who's actually also a guest of our podcast later. You started your lecture performance, which was called Aroma Model, the Cosmopolitan Other, with card reading and palm reading. And you brought those practices on stage, which... I read as an act of acknowledgement and at the same time you play with stereotypes and I know that you've been strongly criticized um, from within the community that you put those stereotypes on on stage. Let's talk about those stereotypes and about strategies, how to overcome them. Okay. Yeah, that particular performance was tricky because before... I mean, I don't really engage that much in social media, but Ethel Ethel had told me that we'd had lots of uh, very negative feedback on social media about the prospect of this talk. And I think you'll find that most of the 
if not all of the negative feedback was before the talk actually happened. So people were reacting to what they thought they were going to see. And what they see, what they saw was something quite different, I think. I, I can't be sure about that. Um, so the idea was to present these iconic activities from Roma history, from Roma culture, from Roma present, as a way of thinking about discrimination. So basically, me and Ethel, I gave a, a card reading, a, a tarot card reading to a person. It was a private reading, although people could see us, they couldn't hear what we were saying. So I, I did a card reading for this. I, I give, I do card readings myself. I kind of, it's something that I do, not for money, but I, I kind of do it. So I did a card reading with this uh, young woman and we finished, it was about five minutes and Ethel did a, a, a palm reading. I don't know what relationship Ethel has with palm reading, but it doesn't really matter because it was about reproducing an iconic transactional act on stage as, as an example of how people often very discriminatory about Roma issues, no matter what they're actually about, just because of the way that they're presented. So what I mean by that is we were looking at the ideas of divination, of speculation, of forecasting, which of course is basically what any kind of fortune telling is, you know, card reading or, or palm reading is about projecting into the future, telling people what might happen. And when it's about gypsies, it's damned, it's, you know, it's criminal, it, it's misleading. When it's politicians, when it's uh, financial forecasters, when it's weather forecasters, it's fine. We'll listen. We'll take what you say with a pinch of salt, but we, you know, we won't condemn you for it. So it was ideas of prejudice. And I think that prejudice came up with those people that were condemning the... Um, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I was also thinking before the way it was described, uh, I'm not sure what this is going to be, but then afterwards, of course, uh, relieved and entertained and very happy with what happened there. But I, I got a, a question related to that too. I was just wondering, the cosmopolitan other, isn't that really a code word in British polite society for Jewish? Uh, I was just wondering, was that just, really? is that just a coincidence or was the, did that have anything to do with this the decision yeah okay um i'm not sure to be honest because that the, the cosmopolitan other was kind of added on i'm not sure who added it on because my my area was the the roma model that's kind of my theme and my theory which um, i've written a bit about i talk a bit about that in uh, the book that i did with marie Klavayova after the second roma pavilion we produced a book called we roma a critical reader in contemporary art, which is still available. And there's a conversation between myself and Maria Slavajova at the beginning of that. And I talk about this idea of the Roman model that I've been formulating at the time. And um, the cosmopolitan other, I think that was tie tying in with some other um, ideas that were floating around the 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 actual event, which was um, a conference for the former West um, project that Maria Klavayova had been organising and which took place at the Haus de Kultur und Welt in Berlin. And that's where the performance with me and Ethel took place. So I think the Cosmopolitan Other was a, was kind of involved with some other ideas that were, that were kind of formulated throughout the whole of the program. So I can't already answer your question on that, Bill. Okay, but no thanks. Interesting question. Let's come back to the Future Roma exhibition in, in Venice. Tell us a bit about this exhibition. I think the Future Roma, um, the title, refers to also to Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism reimagines the past and envisions what can be. So the idea that fact follows fiction and the future will be the Roma future. What is the idea? Well, the exhibition draws together a number of things that I've been interested in for a long time, really. And these are basically around hierarchies of practice and um, 
dissemination and um, also collecting. So what I was interested in here is to look at things like links between domestic and professional artistic practice, which is what we've talked about a bit before, between individual archives and state collections, and um, the way that those different positionings kind of interact. So the exhibition has examples of various types of work, um, domestic artistic practice and, and kind of professional contemporary art practice. And also it has works from national museums, from private archives, from the artist's own collection. So this um, project was uh, an opportunity for me to bring together a lot of things that have been preoccupying me for a while. And I had been, ERIAC, European Roman Institute for Arts and Culture, they put out a call for proposals for the Venice Biennale in 2019 for a Roma exhibition there. And um, I started to think about how I could formulate these ideas into something for that. And I had been looking at um, the idea of Afrofuturism in relation to something else. And it occurred to me that this was um, a framework that could be inhabited by really um, Roma groups in order to kind of um, think about our situation and how we might navigate navigate our way kind of forward. So the exhibition itself, the concept draws upon certain aspects of Afrofuturism. It doesn't fully kind of embrace the whole kind of sci-fi thing, but um, that's not what Afrofuturism is about anyway. I understand that. But the um, there are it's kind of a gentle drawing upon that um, positioning in order to think about the current um, situation for gypsies, really. So it enabled me to choose a number of artists that I've been looking at for a while and combine in a particular way in order to think about um, a new way of presenting the gypsy um, subjectivity, really. And he tried to um, to present a counter-narrative somehow. Exactly, yes. So something which um, didn't dwell too heavily upon the atrocities that have been afforded to us in the past, something which, um, that's something which is very important, obviously, and which a lot of other people are dealing with. But I think that I didn't want to dwell upon that too much in this particular exhibition. There are references to that, obviously, in the works, but these are kind of set alongside other possibilities for healing and uh, moving forward within the same space. So what it does try to do, I think, is try to combine the actions of remembering with the actions of remember with the actions of imagining so this idea of um you know honoring what's gone before and recognizing that but also imagining the construction of new futures i think that's um a very healthy way to kind of um try and move forward and make sense of a situation because in some ways the past is weighing heavily upon us but if we can look at new ways of making sense of that, not denying any of it, of course, but but maybe revisiting it and maybe thinking about it in in ways that are constructive for us, then I think that's um, that can be a positive experience. And I think that from the reaction to the exhibition, often people were very moved by it. Often people felt very kind of you know elated when they came out. So I think something was working. 
Yeah, I think this idea of uh, new futures, new possibilities, imagination, that's something you and other Romani artists, uh, other activists and, and uh, scholars, intellectuals, they like to bring up the idea of being avant-garde or, or, you know, being at the forefront of something new and and positive. I was just wondering, when you look at from the intellectual aesthetic, all, all of these things, um, I just want to bring it back again to the community. If, if you can say anything about the reactions from different members of the community about this idea of different futures, or how can how can we be leading into the future this this example of, poten- of a potential future? That's a good point. The exhibition in Venice, the opening was... It's obviously quite an exclusive thing. Not a lot of people can get along to it because it's very expensive. So the, the, the opening was what it was. The other artists were all there. Um, the ones that could be there were there. They had very positive experience about the exhibition. Um, not surprisingly, I suppose. But later on in the run, in I think um, October of 2019, Ariac arranged a, um, uh, a large group of uh, Roma from the outskirts of Venice to come to the exhibition. And... My reports that I heard from that was that, that, that it was very well received and that um, people kind of got a lot from the exhibition, um, possibly mainly in terms of actually getting a trip to, to the gallery to see you know, what was happening in the Biennale. I'm not sure, but um, my, my f- you'd have to ask kind of Ariak about this really to get more details, but my feeling was that, that, that the response was very good. In terms of wider communities and you know, how, how it's how those messages are kind of received i'm not sure i mean i think we can we can you know we can say art can do a lot of things it, a lot of things that art can't do it can't um it can't feed people it can't um you know necessarily change political regimes but um i think in the area that, that it can operate um generally i think that it can offer people some kind of um way forward in terms of thinking that there are others that are making these moves forward. I mean, I think it's a mistake to get too ambitious about how the art world or how art can affect change. I think it can, but I think it's, um, in a way, it's more a reflection of, of, of the possibilities and what's occurring now than it is about actually... Okay. No, that's interesting, Daniel. I just, I'm making a little bit of a, a aside here because um, really my, my question was just to... to I was wondering how other Romani people saw this and if, if they identified with the avant-garde and, and you, you answered that quite well, but I felt a little bit like the weight of the world just dropped on your shoulders because <laughs> you're, you're, you're talking about art and then you know that you can't solve all the problems. Well, it's not your job to solve all the problems. I'm sorry to make you think that way. <laughs> I didn't want you to, 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 to do something like yeah. that with, with, you know, uh, just because I'm talking about the community doesn't mean that, uh, you need to all of a sudden start feeling guilty that you're an artist and you can't solve everyone's problems. <laughs> That's that, that's that's not the question. I, I want. I'm. I really just want to bring that back to you. It, it's okay. <laughs> Can I just carry on and answer the question a, a bit more? Uh, but that's kind of clarified things a bit for me, Bill. Thank you for that. And I think that most people, most gypsy people, most Roman people don't aren't interested in the avant-garde. They don't think about it. And why should they? Really? Um, I think it's a kind of a, a you know it's 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 a theoretical and kind of intellectual pursuit which is which is valuable but um i think that most people are struggling and they really need some help and i don't know how how far my ideas help them with that and um okay no i was just thinking it might be like just another 
light of the future or another model to follow or just an idea. It's like someone, I can imagine uh, a young person coming in and seeing it's like, oh, we're avant-garde. Okay, I don't know what that word means, but like we're the future and we have a future and we're really like, uh, people should look to us because we have the answers. Uh, that's that's kind of inspiring. And I was just wondering if someone, but I, I I'm, thank you for your answer, but I was just wondering if someone might've been thinking that way and that's what I was yeah, getting at. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. I think maybe sometimes it's it's even easier. It's just about visibility. It's just about we are visible. Exactly. I strongly believe in art as a tool of resistance. And I mean, there is an emergent contemporary Romani art scene um, in the last uh, decade, I guess. Danny, do you think that Roma art can offer enough resistance? Or uh, in other words, what, what does it take for Romani art to fully develop its power? Did, did we reach a critical mass? I've always had an issue with the, the, the concept of Roma art as such, really, because I'm not sure how useful the idea is in a general sense. It's certainly useful in terms of its use as, a, as a, a kind of marketing tool for political activism. And, you know, that, that's great. It, it, if it can do that, that's fantastic. But I think um, most artists wouldn't want their work described as Roma art. I mean, obviously, it it, um, it can operate in, the, in that realm. But um, most artists that I know want their art to operate on many levels and to pigeonhole it in that way is problematic. But, you know, obviously... There's room for 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 using works of art by Roma to 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 put forward a certain argument, and that reflects one of the many functions of art. I think so. I'm just saying that because I want to, in a way, move away from the idea of Roma art, even though I think it's a very useful it's a very useful categorization for for curators and for theorists and for writers. I think when you speak to artists, they're resistant to this idea. So it's interesting we're talking about art as resistance because i think it's very powerful tool of resistance but also i think it has many as many sites that it can operate on i think we don't have a critical mass at the moment i think we're working towards it there are many very good um, artists of roma origin we need more and what we need more than that actually is for our work to start to appear in national museums and national narratives and in contemporary art discourse more thoroughly than it does at the moment really is kind of tokenistically looked to at the moment um in a rather ghettoized manner i would say yeah so that needs to change i think that even though visual arts have been a huge step forward for roma emancipation i think that political organization needs to be much more efficient than it is now i don't think it's um in any way reaching its full potential at the moment so i think that the most valuable thing for function for art to perform now is for works by Roma artists to be included in national collections and national narratives, important museums, and for it to be written about in the art press. And it's completely ignored in the art press. And I think that's a tragedy. Absolutely. I mean, maybe now it's the right time to to fight this fight because now in, in, in the frame of the Black Lives Matter movement um also the museums start asking themselves so what about our collections what about the, the presentation of marginalized groups in our collections black people women roma 
Um, so maybe maybe something will change. Um, and what you describe those discussions, um, I, I had with many Romani artists um, during the last years. Uh, always this this idea of what Spivak called the strategic essentialism. So first develop this label of Roma art to then in a second step deconstructing again as soon as you have this visibility and um, have this political fight done. Yeah, but I know what you mean. Are there any upcoming projects you want our listeners to draw their attention to? With Isaac Blake at the Roman Cultural Arts Company, we'll be developing his Gypsy Maker project, um, the RCAC Gypsy Maker project into the uh, next year. There are a couple of projects that I'm working on at the moment, which I, I can't really talk about, so that doesn't really help. But um, it's um, the the show in Florence, the Future Roma show in, is still on in Florence for another couple of weeks. So if anyone is nearby, they could could take a look at that. Yep, I think that that's, uh, as far as things I can kind of discuss, that's that's about it at the moment, really. And another um, information for our listeners, um, Daniel Baker has a website, danielbaker.net, and there you can see a lot of his, lot of his artwork. So have a look and visit, visit his website. Yeah, definitely have a visit. Bill, you like presents as much as I do, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> That's why we asked our guest to bring us one, a virtual gift and... Um, We were asking the guests to bring an object or an item or a non-material object that tells an important biographical anecdote or represents a, a core idea or guiding principle in the life of our guests. So, Daniel, what did you bring us? Well, I brought um, you a copy of the Futurama catalogue, which is ah. uh, a catalogue of the exhibition that um, I did for Venice. And we managed to... Um, get together some funding for a catalogue at the beginning of this year. Obviously, with the COVID issues, there were some delays in its production, but it finally came out in September. And so I have a copy of that for you. But also, because I can't give it to you now, there's a virtual version which you can download from either from uh, my website or from the ARIAC website. You can not hold it in your hands, but you can actually read and look at the um, the content. So that's what I would like to uh, to give you. Great, thanks. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, thank you. So the, this means that the um, this this exhibition was a very important moment for you. Yes, absolutely. The Future Omar exhibition was the culmination of a number of things I've been interested in for a long time. The beginning of my PhD research into gypsy aesthetics focused on an exhibition that I curated um, along with Paul Ryan in 2006 or 2007, um, which was called No Gorgias. No Gorgias was a play on the idea of the no traveler's sign, Gorgia being the uh, Romany word for non-gypsy person. So this exhibition dealt with a lot of the things that I'm dealing with in Future Roma. This idea of combining um, or looking very closely at domestic artistic practice and combining that with a kind of contemporary art sensibility Uh, looking at artworks as biographies of the people that make them and of representative of their communities. So a lot of things that started, let's say, 14 years ago have been developing throughout my career. And the Future Roma show really, I think, brings a lot of those together and allows me to go further, certainly in terms of the geographic scope of the exhibition and the artists involved, but also in terms of the ideas which um, are kind of brought up to date in terms of inclusion and visibility 
and in terms of making a case for gypsy presence to be felt within museums and national narratives in order to move our community forward. Daniel, let's talk about what role it plays for you to be to be Roma. You said once in the past a successful Rom would disappear from Romani society. Today there's an elite with university degrees who insist on their Roma identity. Um, is, is it still an exception when Romanis or British Romanis openly and proudly present their Roma background? Yes, I think it is. Uh, I did some work recently with New Buckinghamshire University. Um, they had a project which was about um, encouraging Gypsy Roma and Traveller students into higher education and looking at strategies to make that happen. I think it is still an issue, yes. I'm not sure if that's for the same kind of reasons that I experienced when I was at art school, i.e. not seeing yourself reflected back and therefore not either not identifying or decided that, that deciding that higher education is not for you. Um, I think there are many things which still need to be done to encourage people into higher education. But, you know, that said, higher education is not the only route to um, to move forward. I mean, anything that kind of makes you happy and safe is perfectly viable and um, should be pursued. So I think um, certainly in the UK, let's say, although there are a small number of gypsy rooms and travellers who are working in the professions who will discuss their identity in those terms. I think there are lots of people who still don't want to because maybe the risk's too high that they may come across discrimination within the workplace or within the educational environment. For some people, it's still too big a risk. So you don't see any new trend, anything coming from within the community of people being more open? You think it's it's pretty much still the same? Well, you know, there's still a lot of very negative media coverage of gypsies. And in the UK, there's always on the TV, there's a program about gypsies, which is never a good program about gypsies. It's, you know, it's always how they're living rubbish, how they're stealing stuff. So it's no surprise that people don't want to be associated with that. And they will, um, you know, decline to be identified. And a lot of these programs, they call themselves documentaries, investigative journalism. They're all entertainment programs. They're there to titillate and they're there to, to basically spread misinformation about gypsies. And, you know, if that kind of thing is still being commissioned by broadcasting companies, then, and it's, it goes relatively unchallenged. I mean, when My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding came out, there was yeah. lots of very vocal opposition to that in the community. But it didn't really make much difference. And um, the cynical move toward viewing figures and advertising revenue means they just come out with the same old rubbish. So, I mean, it doesn't sound very optimistic, but um, I don't think things have changed on the ground that much. Okay. I, I was wondering just from the point of view that, you know, since the 90s, there's been a lot of Roma who have immigrated to the UK and whether that's had any influence on, uh, yeah, mixing of ideas within the community or if basically everything is still very separate and, and apart. And That's a very interesting point, actually, in terms of different gypsy Roma groups. Um, you know, we are existing under an umbrella of a kind of, uh, of an inclusive label, which is fantastic. Yeah, the GRT, yeah. 
Exactly, because our commonalities outweigh our differences, certainly. But there's still a lot of nuance and difference between different Roma groups. So they're not, there's not necessarily a harmony there. And, you know, I would say that as much as, you know, an overarching label, as, you know, you talked about Spivak earlier, uh, Isabel, I think mm-hmm. it's great to be able to, to have, um, you know, a, a label under which to, to move forward and make the, the steps uh, politically. But there, also needs to be an account of the difference within those communities. I mean, that is the same with feminism, with, with you know, mm-hmm. gay rights. You, you start with a, as Spivak rightly says, you start with a, a kind of a, an umbrella under which to move forward, and then things start to kind of change because you realise that there's no homogeneity. I'm not aware of a great deal of, of change on the ground. I hope I'm wrong, but um, that's that's how I see things. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's important to know what you see and what you hear. No, so. Danny, do you think that the gypsy, the Roma culture and tradition survive because the community is so closed in a positive way? It's working so well in the inside or because it's it's still marginalized as a, as a kind of protection strategy? Uh, I think it's probably a mixture of both. Um, I think we're still very marginalized as a group on the whole within national territories. But I think there's a very strong unifying sense of identity through cultural bonding, cultural activities, common kind of language, that kind of thing. I think it's really a mixture of both. As I said earlier, the idea of discrimination still being very widespread in terms of the media, I think that certainly makes people kind of knuckle down and kind of get on with things and not want to necessarily reveal parts of themselves that they don't need to. So I think it's probably a combination of the two. Mm, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's very important also in this podcast that we do not stop emphasizing um, the heterogeneity of Roma. There is not one Romani culture, not one fixed picture or culture of Roma. There's a huge heterogeneity. And this is, I think, a very, very important information. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. That's why we're talking to a number of different people to get a number of different experiences. And hopefully, you know, people within the various Romani communities would like to listen and find out about the others because, yeah, it's not that often that you get a chance to do that. Bill, shall we play our little game, our association game? I think it's game? time for the game, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, another game we prepared and we didn't tell you beforehand. <laughs> we will now read some terms and you answer very spontaneously, just without thinking, with one word or just a very short sentence, okay? Okay. Good. Art. Um, oh gosh, fascinating. Community. Truth. Resistance. Everywhere. Nature. Life. Gender. Um, oh, sex. <laughs> Home. Um, mm, um, that's a difficult one. Um, life. Yesterday. Today. Tomorrow. <laughs> um, the day after. Brexit. Oh, my God. Um, um, oh. Um, chaos. Europe. Chaos. <laughs> Dilno. Say that again. Dilno. Uh, Romani or Dilino in, in continental European Romani. Mad. Mad. Uh, Bok. As in Kushti Bok or Bacht. Luck, yeah. Gorjo. Um, friends. Anti-Gypsyism. Despicable. <laughs> that was nice. Dilno. 
is the Anglo-Romani word for fool or foolish. Dilino is the Central European version of the same word. It can mean foolish. Uh, another way to say it is meshugana, uh, crazy or stupid. It's the diminutive of the word dilo. This is originally an adjective, but can be used as a noun. And in both cases, even people who don't know Romani very well will often know this word. It's become slang in the dominant language in a number of regions. Bok is the Anglo-Romani word for luck. Its Central European version, bacht, means luck or happiness. Bachtalo is the adjective, means happy or lucky. It's typically used in a greeting, Teoves Bachtalo, may you be happy and lucky. It's a centrally and culturally significant word, just as its opposite is, Bibacht or Bibachtalo, which means bad luck or cursed. We wish each other happiness, and we often avoid talking about unlucky things in many Romani traditions. Gorjo is the Anglo-Romani word for a non-Romani person. In Central European Romani, the word is gajo. In its original sense, it's not pejorative. Depending on context and tone of voice, it can be pejorative, and people not familiar with the Romani language often presume this negative meaning. It is equivalent to Gentile for non-Jewish persons. Daniel, in this podcast, we talk about utopia and the dreams of Roma for Europe, and we want to present Roma as role models, um, as people we can, we the majority society can learn from. Um, crisis can become a starting point for inclusion, for changes sometimes. So do you think this current crisis we, we are facing, the corona epidemic, the climate change, Brexit, um, can it be such a starting point in your opinion? Yes, I think there's always a possibility for starting points. And I think utopia is based on the premise of optimism, really. I mean, generally, the idea of utopia to me suggests the unattainable. So I kind of It's not something I spend much time thinking about, but certainly if I think about it in terms of optimism, I'm a very optimistic person, so I always believe that things can be better. That's, it's interesting, particularly in relation to the virus um, situation at the moment. I, I um, remember a, a TV series, I think in about 2014, it was aired in the UK, It was called Utopia, and it was about a conspiracy theory. Um, this organization had developed a, a pathogen, which they were um, about to release onto the population. And the twist in this was, it was a very interesting program. It was kind of partly, partly kind of lighthearted. But the, the main premise of this was that you found out towards the end was that the only people that were immune to this pathogen were the Roma. So it's, um, I mean, what's what it called again? What was the name of it? <laughs> it was called Utopia. Utopia. Okay. Yes. I'm looking I, it up. <laughs> the, the reason that it struck me was because when I watched it in 2014 was because this inclusion of Roma wasn't, wasn't signaled at all within the whole of the program or by any of the stuff I read about the program. I was watching it at home towards the end of the, the, the second series. And suddenly this idea of this pathogen being made in order for Roma, to, it was about recreation, that's right. It was about making people sterile. The only people that didn't make sterile were the Roma. So it was about the possibility of Roma basically inheriting the earth. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not saying that's a fantastic idea. What I'm saying is that what I found interesting was that it was a narrative within which Roma were kind of located but it wasn't sensationalized it wasn't it wasn't signaled it wasn't signposted it was kind of 
a nice surprise to see Roma included in something which was very well produced, which wasn't about all the negative stuff about gypsies. And again, I'm not saying that um, Roma should be the only people living on the earth at all, <laughs> but just that it struck me that this is how really our lives should be portrayed as within the narrative of you know other people's lives. It's not about making us special, it's about making us equal. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point when you, you know, out of the crisis, if uh, there could be some kind of situation that arises where, oh, it just happens to be that the Roma can do this or that. And all of a sudden, it's just uh, there's an aspect to to us that can be normalized. That would be a nice way to get out of the uh, get out of the, the, the chaos. Yeah. So with with that, maybe let's take it one step further. And in what way, what would be that one thing other than, you know, not surviving a virus, but maybe maybe something else? If there's is there an aspect that you could maybe imagine a bit further? In what way could Roma serve as a model for a new way of understanding Europe or the UK of tomorrow? Um, yes, I think in terms of adaptability, Roma are very a, a very adaptable community, and um, the way that very rigid structures have been seen to be failing over the, uh, not just during the pandemic, but um, you know over the last ten uh, fifteen years, the way that Europe has displayed a certain degree of inflexibility and all the countries involved in terms of a kind of a lumbering, you know, I'm very pro-Europe, by the way, but I think there are certain structures within Europe that that fail the communities because of their inability to um, to react and to adapt and to bring in contingencies that, um, you know, some of which were maybe foreseeable. Certainly our government is very guilty of that in the UK. So I think uh, Roma's ad adaptability is certainly one of the many things that um, could be used as a model, but also the Roma's sustainability in terms of living lightly on the land, you know, not, um, not impacting too much on our surroundings. You know, we're very much in the past have been vilified for, for messing up areas of land that, that we've kind of settled upon. But, um, you know, anything that, um, that the real damage to the land is being done by pollution and corporations that are not being held to account for the consequences. Yeah, and the damage to, to, to caravan sites in France and in the UK is not because of the Roma who are there, but because the authorities don't allow access to water that they should be required to give by law and, and other issues, not, not the Roma themselves. So I really like that, you know, adaptability and sustainability. Those are both hmm. very, yeah very relevant traits for today and for the future and belong to us. What about the idea of transnational solidarity? Am I romanticizing or is there this transnational solidarity within the Roma communities? Yes, there, there certainly is. Again, I think um, at a grassroots level, I think it's more of, I think it's more of an aspiration for the, um, for the big movers. But um, yes, the, certainly intellectually, this idea of transnationality is very important mm. um, The realities of that on the ground, I'm not sure how that operates really. Certainly in terms of language and mm. ideas of mobility or, or the restrictions upon mobility of Roma people. I think it's the idea of transnationality is more of an idea and, and an ideal and a utopian ideal, absolutely, which is very important as an idea. But again, I would bring us back to the idea of how this operates on the ground. And I think it's important for us to be aware that the high-flying ideas that we have in terms of our artworks and our, you know, intellectual conceptualization are important, but 
we still need to be very concerned about what's happening on the ground. Yeah, there you're right. Maybe this is is a good link to the end. Yeah, let's let's get back to the subject of the podcast. Uh, what is your utopia, Daniel? What's your dream for Europe? And and if you could have a Romatopia for the UK or for Europe or the world, what would it look like? It would, in a word, it would be equality. Really, you know, equality, enough food, enough utilities for people to be able to carry on their lives in, in a comfortable manner. That would be my idea of utopia, really. It's, um, I think, at the, the core of any kind of political movement, political uh, fight, is is the striving for equality. And I think that's that would underpin my idea of, of a utopia. That's nice. Daniel, one last game. If you could ask one question on all radio, TV and print media in Europe for one day, what would that question be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Mm, um, that question would be, um, why aren't there any gypsies in your organization? <laughs> oh, good one. <laughs> very, very good last sentence for this very first episode of this podcast, Romatopia, Roma Talk About Their Utopias of Europe. Daniel, thank you so much for being our guest. It was so nice. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Talking yeah. to you. I mean, Bill, we could continue for hours, couldn't we? Yes, yes, we could. I, I really appreciate the yeah, personal insights, your your opinions. Uh, you put it all together very nicely. Uh, I think it, I, I hope our listeners agree. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Romatopia is supported by the Federal Agency for Civic Education and the Council of Europe Roma and Travelers team. Idea and concept, Isabel Rabe. Romatopia is hosted and edited by Isabel Rabe and William Biela and directed by Katja Lehmann. Sound design by Selamet and Kefait Prisreni. Cover motif by Daniel Baker. Production, Media Bricks Berlin 2020.